and um, next month will be Elizabeth McGrath talking about geriatric oncology. But today, we have Mary Wood, who is a, a diabetes educator here at Dartmouth, and um, Turn over to Mary Wood. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Make sure everybody um, remotely has everything on mute. A couple shuffles. I think she's muted it. Perfect. Thank you. And at the end, Nicole will be giving Yes, we'll open it up. Hey. Well, good afternoon. Nice to see you all here. See you all there. Um, as Nicole said, my name is Mary Wood. I'm the clinical nurse specialist for diabetes here at Dr. Hitchcock. I work in the inpatient part of the hospital. Um, and we're going to talk today about um, the implications of diabetes um, for our older adult population. So this kind of goes both ways. Diabetes affects aging. Aging affects diabetes. So we'll talk some about that. And then we'll discuss uh, what the uh, reasonable expectations are for um, glycemic control in uh, older patients. Um, talk a little bit about the uh, medication use in older adults with diabetes um, and the patient education piece, which is also part of our nursing care. Um, this is a, a big problem and getting bigger and continue to be so for some time. We know that um, we're seeing more and more diabetes in all age groups, uh, but the fact that we're all living longer means that there will be of diabetes um, in our future for some time. We know that it's a very expensive chronic illness, and so this is um, has been called one of the most important epidemics of the 21st century because of its scope and its um, Right now, the numbers from the CDC tell us that about a little over 8% of the U.S. population in general has diabetes, but among uh, individuals who are 65 years or older, um, that number swells to percent So the older we are, the more likely we are to have diabetes. Um, about one-third of the general population with diabetes is thought to not yet know they have diabetes. Because for many people, it is a silent disease, and they wander around for years, sometimes before being diagnosed. The estimate is that about half of older adults who actually have diabetes don't yet know it. So there are implications for uh, screening for diabetes as well. Pre-diabetes is a, a newer term. How many of you have heard this term, pre-diabetes? So most of you have. Um, I'll show you the uh, definition of this in just a minute. But these are people who don't yet have diabetes, but who are in a high-risk category because they have some elevated blood sugar levels. And this is believed to um, be present in 79 million Americans. Um, among adults, 20 and older, that's about one-third. And in adults over 65, that's half pre-diabetes, but only 7% of people with pre-diabetes have been diagnosed as yet. So again, silent, risk factors, silent disease, a lot of people are wandering around not knowing that they have a Google Thank you for muting your speaker, please. I'll try to speak louder. So these are the criteria for making the diagnosis of diabetes. You probably have met people as I have who say, oh, I don't have diabetes. I'm just borderline. Or I just have, this is my favorite, a touch of the sugar. But the numbers are really black and white. And so you have it or you don't. Um, this in-between category, though, pre-diabetes, is an actual um, <coughs> Uh, risk factor category, and these are people whose blood sugar numbers, regardless of what test we use to test them, um, are not normal, but not quite high enough to buy the diagnosis of diabetes. So, um, so as you can see here, to uh, not have a glucose problem at all, you need a fasting glucose of less than 100, or a uh, an oral glucose tolerance test, 75 grams load of glucose, two-hour result of less than 140 or hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7. The numbers in that range, that is normal glucose tolerance. To make the diagnosis of the diabetes, as you can see on the bottom, uh, a fasting glucose exceeding 125. Um, people who have an oral glucose tolerance test two hour uh, result of 200 or higher, or hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or higher, 
or if in this random plasma glucose category, if they show up with the classic symptoms of polyuria polydipsia and um, have a glucose of 200 or higher, they have now the diagnosis of diabetes. With um, any of the other tests without the classic symptoms, we do do a follow-up test on a subsequent day just to rule out any laboratory error to make the diagnosis. Um, but for people with the, uh, the pre, these pre-diabetes numbers in the in-between category, um, we do make the determination of this pre-diabetes as a risk uh, category. And that's an important point in time because um, prevention efforts have been shown excuse me, to be successful. So if we find people early on, um, then we can diagnose them and uh, encourage them to make some lifestyle changes and perhaps take a medication that will reduce the likelihood or at least delay the progression to full-blown diabetes. So the screening is important. As I said, there are a lot of millions of Americans walking around who have a glucose tolerance problem and don't yet know it, so the screening is important. So looking for those in the pre-diabetes zone at a point at which prevention is possible. Um, these are sad figures, but it's um, projected that by the year 2050, one in three American adults will have diabetes. So look beside you, um, uh, the person on your left or on your right, one of the three of you um, may have diabetes by 2050, nothing changes. Um, it's a hugely expensive disease. Um, estimated now that the annual cost for people who have diabetes that has been diagnosed is $245 billion a year. Um, thinking about those who don't yet know they have diabetes, they may be brewing a complication of diabetes, which will be very expensive in the long run. So, uh, so that's just among people who know about the diabetes. Um, so we're, as we're screening people of all ages, and this certainly applies to our older um, adult uh, population as well, we should be looking particularly for people who have risk factors. Um, the risk factors for type 2 diabetes include being overweight, um, having a family history of diabetes, Certain racial and ethnic groups are a higher risk category. Uh, Caucasians tend to be at a lower risk for type 2 diabetes. Women who have a history of gestational diabetes or who delivered a baby exceeding 9 pounds are at a higher risk. People with hypertension, higher than 140 over 90, or with the dyslipidemia pattern of low HDL and high triglycerides, they're at higher risk. People who are physically inactive are at higher risk for diabetes. So the recommendation is to screen any adult um, with risk factors earlier, but all adults beginning at age 45 and over and normal screening every three years to look for diabetes. Um, additional risk factors that we see in elderly folks are that their islet cell function is, is impaired um, and they have um, a greater um, presence of insulin resistance. And this is probably related to uh, carrying extra weight Sarcopenia, the muscle wasting of elderly is a factor as well, and also inactivity. So um, the elderly are more likely to be uh, at risk for type 2 diabetes. So the screening is important, and we should um, be screening our elderly folks within reason, uh, you know, looking at life expectancy um, and the burden of the diagnosis. But certainly, um, if the treatment, the prevention primarily, or the treatment of diabetes would be beneficial given the big picture, then screening for diabetes in the elderly population is recommended. Um, we know that among older adults uh, who have diabetes, they carry a higher mortality rate. Um, they're more likely to have some functional impairment as a result of their diabetes, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And they're at a higher risk um, to need um, to be housed um, in a skilled facility or with family or not, uh, you know, not to be able to live independently. Um, so I mentioned the prevention of diabetes. When we find people of any age who have pre-diabetes, um, we recommend certain um, interventions as early as possible to try to reduce the likelihood that they will progress to type 2 diabetes. Um, so back in the 90s, there was a trial done called the Diabetes Prevention Program that looked at uh, aggressive lifestyle modification of healthy diet, regular exercise, modest weight loss. Um, and a medication group, they used metformin in this trial to see whether either of those interventions would reduce the progression uh, to diabetes. And what they found was that it was, the lifestyle was twice as effective as the metformin arm uh, in this study. Um, and the lifestyle modifications were particularly effective in the elderly. So they had weighted the um, 
cohort in the study to have a, a large number of older folks, um, and they found that, particularly in the elderly folks, that the lifestyle interventions were really beneficial. Um, so that's an important take-home message. Um, there was no significant benefit among elderly from the metformin, and as I said, it, the general population of the trial is only about a half of the benefit. So uh, lifestyle at any age is really key. Um, for people who are diagnosed with diabetes earlier in life, you know, I'm talking a lot about type 2 diabetes here. Certainly there are people who have type 1 diabetes from childhood, adolescence, early adulthood who will grow into their older years um, and continue with their type 1 diabetes. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But um, for people who um, are diagnosed with diabetes after the age of 65, um, they tend to more likely be uh, in uh, the Caucasian ethnic group at that age of diagnosis, um, they're more likely to have a, to maintain a lower um, hemoglobin A1C over time, less likely to need insulin treatment than our um, folks who are diagnosed in, let's say, in their middle age years. Um, people who are, have a later diagnosis are less likely to develop retinopathy. Um, but compared to those diagnosed in middle age, the middle age years, they're of about equal risk to develop cardiovascular disease and peripheral neuropathy. So we see some differences um, when we divide up the uh, population based on the age of onset. Um, so type 2 diabetes in middle age folks tends to um, show up with higher fasting glucose levels because of the excessive uh, liver output of glucose. Um, their insulin secretion after meals is impaired, so their ability to produce enough insulin after eating. And the insulin re resistance tends to be more profound in people diagnosed in middle age. But in older folks, we tend to see more lean type 2 diabetes. Um, and they are, they respond better to smaller doses of insulin, interestingly. So again, in this cohort of old elderly people, we're seeing some differences compared to the middle age counterparts. Um, certainly, there are obese people who are um, elderly as well. And in those folks, their um, type 2 diabetes tends to look more like that of uh, those diagnosed in middle age. Um, so when an elderly patient presents with uh, new diabetes, um, it, just like in other ages, often they're asymptomatic. They may not have any symptoms at all. Hyperglycemia has to be present and excessive for quite some time before people really feel uh, the typical symptoms. It's not like a new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes in which there's really profound polyuria and polydipsia. That's why this is a silent disease and we have those millions of people walking around who are undiagnosed. Um, the renal threshold um, is a little bit higher in the elderly, meaning that a younger person might start to spill glucose into the urine once their blood sugar exceeds about 180, but that threshold may be higher, more like 200 or so um, in the elderly folks. Um, so the polyuria may not be as uh, dramatic for that reason, because they need, the blood sugar needs to be higher before they start passing more urine. Um, many elderly people have an impaired sense of thirst, so they may not notice that they are thirsty, and so they don't complain of polyuria symptoms. Um, sometimes what we see with a new diagnosis in an elderly person is changes in their mentation, so altered mental status, perhaps some confusion, um, some weight loss, failure to thrive, incontinence, which could be related to the um, excessive um, hyperglycemia causing uh, diuresis. Um, so we may see some different sorts of things. So the, the uh, history um, in these patients is really important to try to go dig in and see what's going on. Um, incontinence is a, uh, is a common uh, comorbidity <laughs> with, uh, with um, type 2 diabetes, or diabetes in adults with their hyperglycemia. So, Um, so with, with the initial presentation of um, diabetes in the elderly, sometimes we see it in the hospital setting. So, so I see patients in the hospital all the time, and if they come to us, we typically will check a um, glucose level as part of their routine labs. And so we make the diagnosis of diabetes sometimes when people are hospitalized for something else, um, and it commonly might be uh, a significant hospitalization, an MI or stroke. Um, stress of all that may be enough to um, cause the hyperglycemia to become more uh, apparent. 
Um, sometimes in nursing home patients, the initial presentation of diabetes is hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar or non-ketotic syndrome, which is the type two corollary of diabetic ketoacidosis. So really significant acute uh, complication, but sometimes that's the initial presentation. Um, and what you would see in that case is um, folks that have altered mental status, um, they may be extremely dehydrated, um, but again, if they don't sense their thirst, they may not be rehydrating themselves or if they're not able to independently um, get fluids, that may be a piece of it. Um, significant hyperglycemia, but they're not ketotic. Um, so this, um, this condition carries a pretty significant mortality rate, 30 to 40% is what I've read, um, because the treatment is often delayed because the individual is unable to notice the changes in themselves. So particularly in um, elderly folks who are living independently, this is a major risk because um, if somebody's not checking on them routinely, they may continue to take their Lasix, not sense their thirst, the dehydration exacerbates them, uh, can be a very serious condition. Fortunately, the mortality rate with HHNF has been declining over time. I think is there's a better appreciation for um, how significant this is. So I mentioned that our goal is really to catch people when they're in the pre-diabetes stage before the blood sugar numbers get all the way to the diabetes diagnosis. Um, and when we find folks there, then as I said, the treatment has been shown to be successful and these lifestyle treatments are particularly successful in the elderly, which is great. Um, so eating a healthy diet, uh, getting regular exercise, modest weight loss, even for obese people, we're not looking for them to lose 50 pounds, but losing five or 10 pounds can make a big difference. And then ongoing um, screening. So these are folks who can't wait three years between um, evaluations. They should be followed um, at least a few times a year to follow up and see if they are in fact progressing to full-blown diabetes. Um, if we do find somebody who has actual diabetes, and this is a new diagnosis, it's important that they appreciate that, um, that <clears throat> diabetes can be diagnosed at any age. We even see type new type 1 diabetes up through middle age or so. Um, and the, the diagnosis of diabetes needs to be very clear. Um, it's a serious chronic condition for which there is no cure, but management is the, the key, management of blood sugar levels, and that the individual and whoever their support system may be is in charge of managing this disease. It's, um, their team will, their healthcare team will help them, but it's really a self-managed condition. So that's the important message at all ages for um, the new diagnosis. Um, our goals for treating um, diabetes in the elderly um, for safety's sake include avoiding hypoglycemia. Um, certainly when blood sugar gets low, um, prompt treatment is important. And um, so for anybody, it's important to try to have as few episodes of hypoglycemia as possible. But in the elderly in particular, um, hypoglycemia can cause cardiac arrhythmias. So if they're at risk for that, that's a, that's an issue. Um, I think about elderly people waking up in the night with low blood sugars. If they then are stumbling to the kitchen, there's certainly the risk of falling. Um, so keeping something next to the bed, if they have known diabetes and their risk for hypoglycemia is important. Um, so from a safety perspective, trying to avoid that. Um, because of the dehydration issues that we've talked about a little bit, trying to avoid significant and prolonged hyperglycemia is really the key. So trying to aim for good blood sugar control and avoid the extremes um, over time, um, as you know, diabetes can lead to lots of long-term chronic complications, and so um, just as with um, people who have diabetes of any age, trying to um, reduce the risk of those long-term complications is the um, another overarching goal of diabetes treatment. Um, and particularly for the elderly people, trying to um, enhance their functional abilities so that they can um, continue to be as active and independent as possible. So. Um, reducing the likelihood of um, foot wounds and neuropathy um, that can really interfere with the one's um, ability to get around and take care of themselves. So um, treatment for older adults specifically with diabetes is um, an area for which we don't have an awful lot of evidence. Many of the clinical trials that have been done in looking at diabetes treatment and its outcomes um, have targeted younger populations. Um, so there isn't an awful lot of evidence specifically about the older folks, just as there isn't for pregnant women and 
the children in. So the most clinical trials are done with a, a, a um, young adult or middle adult population. Um, there was, however, a consensus group that was called together by the American Diabetes Association and did publish um, a consensus statement last year uh, based on the evidence that they had. And so some of the treatment recommendations that I'll make, uh, be describing are coming from that consensus statement. Um, an earlier statement from the ADA um, came out with this recommendation. Um, and this was based on um, a few uh, diabetes intervention and outcome studies that had a mixed age population. Um, looking at the benefits of tight <coughs> blood sugar control once the individual has already had diabetes for five to ten years and perhaps already has some complications. Um, and so what they concluded is that patients who have a shorter duration of type 2 diabetes and who don't yet have significant cardiovascular complications would uh, find tight blood sugar control beneficial in preventing those complications. But that really tight blood sugar control um, may be more risky in a certain populations, particularly those who have had diabetes for a longer period of time, those who already have um, advanced cardiovascular disease, people who frequently have severe hypoglycemia, and those who are older or more frail. So um, this is really becoming an important piece of individualizing diabetes treatment that pertains particularly to the elderly. Um, we used to say, you know, tight blood sugar control for everyone, and now the recommendations are becoming a little bit more individualized, which I think is a good thing. So with um, treatment of diabetes, time is certainly of the essence. Our current evidence tells us that the earlier and more aggressive the treatment is at, after the diagnosis of diabetes, the better the long-term outcomes. Um, so it's important for people of all ages. Um, we do relax the targets a little bit, as I said, for people who are um, older, who perhaps are more prone to um, real swings in their blood sugar, whose life expectancy is perhaps a little bit shorter. Um, so as you can see here, we're um, in healthy elderly folks, we're aiming for uh, fasting glucose of uh, less than 126, um, and a two-hour post-meal glucose of less than 200, and hemoglobin of less than seven. So those um, are the recommendations for elderly folks who are otherwise quite healthy and have a reasonable life expectancy. Um, but for the frail elderly, we do relax those targets, but both from the risk of complications, from the futility of trying to be very aggressive when in fact um, life expectancy may be shorter, um, and the burden of treatment is another consideration too when it comes to um, aggressive targets. How do they define frail element? Is there an age group? You know, I, I don't think it's specifically the age element from what I read, but I think it's more, you know, each, each individual and their own, their whole picture. So whether they have other comorbidities, decreased life expectancy, I think is a piece of this. What's your definition of elderly in general? Um, I, I believe over 65 is what, is what I was defining in the literature that I was reading something recently that referred to elderly patients over age 50, and I took great offense. <laughs> but for most of the literature, it's over 65. Yeah, sure. Um, so for people who have um, a lot of comorbidities in addition to their diabetes, and generally, as we all know, diabetes usually isn't the only chronic condition that people have, but typically they have other uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, chronic disease, and other unrelated things, they arthritis, you know, all sorts of other conditions as well. Um, so the targets should be adjusted for, to consider safety and quality of life um, and avoiding the extremes. So, I'm sure you can't read the fine print on this table, but let me just take a couple of minutes to describe this. Um, this is um, a new recommendation that came out of the um, Diabetes, the American Diabetes Association last year, not related just to elderly patients, but for anybody, um, to think about individualizing treatment targets. And essentially what this is saying is that for people with some characteristics, which I'll describe, our, 
um, targets should be tighter. So perhaps an A1C of 6%. And for other characteristics, the target should be lower, perhaps an A1C of 8 or 8.5%. So the, the factors that we need to think about for each of our patients are um, first, the patient's attitude and their expected treatment efforts. So I, how many of you have ever had a patient who we might classify as non-adherent to our recommendation? <laughs> so for people that just aren't going to do it, it doesn't make sense to for all of us to beat our heads against the wall and keep driving for an A1C of 6 in somebody who's not going to do it. So, so the patient has to buy into it. That's a big piece of it, is the patient's attitude. Um, risk for hypoglycemia is the second piece. Some people who have had diabetes for some time have lost their ability to sense hypoglycemia. They lose those adrenergic symptoms of shaking and sweating. It's actually an autonomic neuropathy. And so if people don't feel it when they get low, it's dangerous for them to tiptoe on the edge of low. So for those folks, we should adjust their targets up a little bit higher so they're not likely to have hypoglycemia. Uh, disease duration is another factor to consider. The newer somebody is to their diabetes, the more aggressive we should be. They're much more likely to feel their loads better. They're more likely to respond um, to a more simplified treatment regimen in some cases. Their response is a little more predictable. So shorter duration of diabetes should drive a tighter target. The longer they've had diabetes, the harder it is to get them in tighter control, and perhaps they're higher risk for uh, complications if we push too hard. So longer duration of diabetes should mean a more relaxed target. Life expectancy, long life expectancy, tighter targets, understandably. Shorter life expectancy because of the burden of treatment and the lack of benefit potentially, back off a little bit. Um, comorbidities, if they have none or few comorbidities, then um, a tighter target is recommended. More comorbidities, the risk for Adverse events is higher, so back off on the target. Um, established vascular complications. Some studies have shown that once people have vascular complications, if we put them into really tight glycemic control, the morbidity mortality outcomes are worse. Um, and finally, resources and support systems. If they've got, you know, if they can pay for test strips and insulin, they're more likely to be able to do it. So a patient in the emergency room yesterday came in in DKA because she didn't have money for lanes. I mean, we see these all the time. So in that case, we need to be a little more relaxed. So I, I find this a very interesting model to think about. Um, and this is kind of a new concept. So not a, aiming for less than 7% for everybody, but looking at the big picture and thinking about each of our individual patients. So again, this doesn't apply just to elderly patients. This applies to everybody. But certainly, you can see where the elderly folks might fall on this spectrum um, and bears um, individualizing the treatment. Um, and so. Hopefully, we can add some years of life to these people. Remember the 20 extra years you added to your life on clean, healthy living? Well, these are them. <laughs> so quality of life is always certainly important to consider, and listening to the patient is very important. Um, so given that, we need to look at each individual, and we don't want to undertreat patients who are capable of, willing to um, pursue aggressive um, diabetes management. So so as for patients of any age with diabetes, their treatment, their self-management, their own management involves these five things. I always count on my fingers when I talk to patients about the big five. The lifestyle, treatment, a healthy diet, regular exercise, that's essential for everybody with diabetes. Um, obviously, all type 1s need to have insulin. Some type 2s don't need medication, at least early in their disease. But type 2 diabetes is an evolving disease that changes as time goes on, and so they may ultimately need one medication, often they start with metformin and then add a second, and then maybe a third pill, and then add nighttime insulin, and then go to basal holding insulin. So the medications evolve over time. Monitoring, certainly elderly folks can learn how to monitor their blood sugars just as anybody else can and play an important role in managing their own disease by gathering that information. And then patient education is always huge and close follow-up with their diabetes care team. Um, so my most important thing I ever say about nutrition is that we, as nurses, should take full advantage of our dietitian colleagues who work here. So in the inpatient part of the hospital, <coughs> the dietitians um, can be called in to provide patient education around diabetes or anything. But um, 
you don't need an order in the chart to bring it from the team to call in a dietitian for education. So that's a really mm -hmm. important piece, that they're brilliant and they do a great job. The nutrition goals for elderly people who have diabetes are um, reasonable amounts of carbohydrate. We don't push a low-carb diet for anybody. Reasonable amounts of carb. Um, reduced fat because of the risk of um, cardiovascular disease. Increased fiber is good for many things, but for blood sugar control as well. And achieving and maintaining a reasonable weight is the key. Um, it, I didn't put a bullet here about protein, but certainly elderly people, we need to think about protein. And, um, and sometimes that's something that lags. So they may need uh, supplements added to their diet if they're not eating adequate protein for their needs. Um, regular exercise is important for all of us as well, and it certainly has um, great benefits for people who have diabetes. I always like to say that exercise is probably the most powerful treatment we have for diabetes. In addition to all the good stuff it does for everybody, for people with diabetes, it uses up their glucose faster and makes them more sensitive to insulin, so it makes the insulin work harder. So if a patient has a blood sugar of 180 and they go out for a walk, their blood sugar will get chipped down to 120 or so. I always recommend that when they come back from their walk that they not poke their finger immediately because while they're exercising, that extra glucose is mobilized, and if they poke too soon, they'll be disappointed. But if they sit and relax for 15, 20 minutes and then check the blood sugar, they'll see that it has come down from taking that walk. And I always encourage that people try to build up their distance a little bit at a time, depending on where people live. They might add an extra mailbox each day. The road I live on, that's a really long one <laughs> to the next mailbox. So maybe, you know, tell them, hold just go a little bit farther each day uh, remembering they have to turn around and come back as well. But walking is fabulous because they can do it anywhere. Um, our weather makes it a little tricky in the winter sometimes around here, but um, but I think that finding some sort of exercise they enjoy, doing it with a friend may be helpful. Thinking about um, the risk for hypoglycemia, if they haven't been exercising and now they add exercise without changing either the food or the medicine is a little bit risky. Uh, so looking at each patient's exercise, really talking about that in specifics with our patients um, it, I mentioned that it uses up the glucose faster, but also makes the insulin work harder. And particularly in new type 2 diabetes, our treatment really needs to be aimed at improving the sensitivity to insulin. You know, insulin resistance is the crux of type 2 diabetes. And if we can make individuals use the insulin they have better, then that will contribute to weight loss as well as better blood sugar control. Later on, when they are making less insulin, that's when we have to add the agents that either help them make more insulin or actually adding insulin injections. But early on, we want the insulin to work better, and exercise is a huge way to do that. Um, we have a, quite a long list of medications for treating um, type 2 diabetes now, which is great. Um, and any one of these could, can be used in elderly patients. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about each of the individual medications, but our mantra always is start low and go slow for elderly patients. Some of these do have specific elderly dosing um, reductions, some do not. But with all elderly, well, with many elderly patients, they're taking a lot of medications. The average is six medications per patient, but you know, in the inpatient side, when you look at a patient's ambulatory med list, even younger patients, it's incredible how many meds some people do take, so there's the risk for some interaction. Also, certainly as people get older, their renal um, clearance is less robust, and so their um, medications will hang on a little bit longer, um, particularly with the sulfonylureas. We see that. I'll say something more about that in a moment. Um, so trying to improve the insulin sensitivity is important, particularly in the obese patients. The, the lean elderly patients, and these are sometimes those that are diagnosed um, in their 60s, 70s, um, they may be at already not producing very much insulin, so we may need to augment their insulin secretion. So a sulfonylurea or one of the short-acting insulin secreting drugs like Crandon or Starlix may be a good choice. So individualizing the treatment is always the key. Metformin is our favorite first-line agent, particularly in um, obese type 2s. Um, but again, we don't have an awful lot of evidence about how it works in elderly folks. They just haven't been studied. Um, but we need to uh, pay very close attention to the renal function in people who take uh, metformin, people of all ages who take metformin. 
um, because of the risk of lactic acidosis. So a very rare but very serious consequence of um, metformin in the wrong individual. So, so the creatinine level ought to be monitored at least annually in these patients. Um, and if it exceeds 1.4 in women and 1.5 in men, the metformin needs to be stopped. Um, so it's a wonderful drug. It's inexpensive. It's generic. It's usually well tolerated. Once you get through the nausea and diarrhea of the first few days, most people are able to take it successfully. For some people, the GI effects uh, persist. They need to come off it. But uh, important to um, ask patients about that. Taking it on a full stomach or taking the extended release sometimes helps with those GI um, alcohol, binge drinking, is a contraindication for metformin, and I didn't talk about alcohol, and I was talking about nutrition, but certainly that's a real issue for the elderly in some cases, and so certainly something that we need to address um, with this population. Um, there are sulfonylureas, glyburide, glipizide, glimepiride, or amaryl is this one that I have on the screen here. Um, these are commonly used, um, again, in the thin elderly or the, the second or third line agent in the more obese um, patients to help their pancreas make a little more insulin. So it's kind of a cheerleader for the beta cells to get them working a little bit harder. And they work really well. The side effects, though, are hypoglycemia and weight gain. So we need to be cautious about that. Elderly dosing is recommended. But if, if patients take these sulfonylureas and their pancreas is busy making a lot of extra insulin and then they skip meals or eat really small meals, they're at risk for hypoglycemia. Uh, the weight gain comes in just as it does with insulin injections. If they <coughs> eat a whole lot more than they need for their energy expenditure and they, their pancreas is making plenty of insulin, they'll store extra glucose as fat if they gain weight over time. So you need to be cautious with that. Um, but the glimepiride of the three sulfonylurea seems to be the one that's a little bit safer um, for people who may have some early renal insufficiency, um, as many elderly people do. Um, so we tend to... Um, We've moved more toward this um, choice more recently. Um, hypoglycemia, as I've alluded to, is a real risk for anybody with diabetes, but particularly for the elderly, um, and more likely to be severe or even fatal in the elderly if they're not tuned into what their symptoms are, or if they've had diabetes long enough that have lost some symptoms. So hypoglycemia certainly is a risk with insulin. We all know that. But when we're starting a patient new on a sulfonylurea, it's important to review this as well because, again, Sulfonylurea is helping them make more insulin, so the risk for hypoglycemia is certainly um, present. Um, glimepiride, uh, again, for this reason, for renal insufficiency reasons, but also the risk of hypoglycemia is a little bit um, less. Um, patients who have, uh, who are elderly may not feel their hypoglycemic symptoms. Other medications, beta blockers may interfere, uh, for example, with how they sense their hypoglycemia. So uh, important that we review um, this with patients and encourage them to test their blood sugars frequently to see how, um, how things are going with their um, risk for hypoglycemia. Um, another class of medicines that we don't see much anymore are the thiazolidine uh, and dialysis. This is Actos, which um, is still on the market. Um, and Avandia, which for all intents and purposes has been taken off the market, although I saw patients this week who's on Avandia. I said, has your PCP mentioned to you that this isn't such a good idea anymore? So um, anyway, these are insulin sensitizers, which is a very good uh, mechanism for people with fairly new um, type 2 diabetes, and they work quite nicely, but they've been riddled with um, side effects. And so our hope is that um, on our wish list for medications. One is that metformin that doesn't cause diarrhea or that doesn't interfere with the uh, elevated creatinine. Uh, but two is a, a thiazolidine that doesn't um, have side effects. So, um, so they can cause edema, uh, fluid retention, and so that's a risk in elderly people. So cautious use. We don't see these very often anymore. Um, some of the newer medications that we're seeing, um, the Incretins, are, these are the injectable non-insulin medicines, Bieta and um, Victoza are the trade names of these medications. Um, they're injected once or twice a day um, and help the individual to make more insulin, make less glucagon, so therefore release less stored sugar from their liver, suppresses the appetite a little bit, tends to help with weight loss as well as glycemic control. So they're nice medications. Um, 
they're still relatively new. Baeta's probably been out about five years or so. What'd you say? Maybe longer. Um, but it's um, they're being used and um, quite successfully. Um, and then the DPP4 uh, inhibitors are pills that help to um, allow the individual's own incretin hormones to continue to do that work of suppressing the glucagon, increasing the insulin production. Um, and there are three of these pills that are out there now. Um, so far, we have no reason to think that they wouldn't work um, safely in um, elderly folks. Um, there uh, may be uh, starting off with lower doses and again aggressively, or not aggressively, slowly titrating if need be. So some nice medication options um, that will work. These newer ones, of course, are very expensive, as all new medications are. So glimepiride and metformin are really inexpensive. So that's a, those are other reasons why they're good to use. So that's a quick run through the medications. Um, again, the bottom line is go slowly with our uh, patients and individualize the treatment. Um, insulin is certainly a, an option for people who have um, type 2 diabetes that's not adequately controlled with the other medication options. Um, I think a lot of times we think, oh, the patient that isn't going to want a needle. You know, so we keep this as sort of the last resort, which sometimes makes the patient feel like, oh, I must be a failure now if I need to go to insulin because they were holding that off. Insulin is actually a very, very good treatment. It can be completely individualized to the patient's needs. You can be as aggressive with it as you need to be. Um, the newer insulins really work quite nicely to mimic the normal physiologic insulin release. So it's a really good medication. If there was a uh, an insulin replacement tablet, like a once-a-day thyroid replacement, that would be fabulous. But the real challenge with insulin is that everybody's needs are different, and even throughout the day, the need ebbs and flows. You know, if you think about it, the beta cell, it's my favorite cell in the whole body, obviously, and I'm biased, but it's a really smart cell because it measures the glucose level, releases just the right amount of insulin, backs off when less is needed, if the glucose gets a little too low, the beta cell wakes up the alpha cell, says, hey, we need some glucagon. And so it's a really, really fine-tuned mechanism that's exquisite in balancing out blood sugar levels in people who don't have diabetes. So the challenge in replacing insulin in people who need to inject it is making sure that they always have some. Sometimes a day they need a lot. Sometimes a day they need very little. But it, that's the tricky part. And once you inject insulin, it's in there. You can't take it out again. So the risk for hypoglycemia, if there's too much, if you haven't taken enough, then you'll have hyperglycemia. So it's, it's a tricky business. Um, someday, hopefully before too long, there will be a mechanical beta cell, which will be an insulin pump with an insulin sensor that reads the blood sugar level if the right amount of insulin. A, a huge advance that was just reported this summer is that they have developed a um, glucagon solution that is stable, because the, the glucagon emergency kits that we use for severe hypoglycemia, you know you have to mix that, the family has to mix that right before they give it, and it's not stable in a solution. So these, uh, they've just come out with a stable glucagon, which is great. So these little in, implantable pumps will someday have a very concentrated insulin and a little glucagon, and will do just what the beta and alpha cells do, which will be great. Uh, but we're not there yet. So in the meantime, insulin treatment remains tricky. The newer insulins, though, have been a real nice boon. Um, the old NPH and regular had big peaks and big valleys. These newer insulins, you know, the Lantus and Levomir are pretty flat for 24 hours. The Novolog and Humalog work quickly and go away quickly. So, so the newer insulins are great. What did I say about new medicine? They're very expensive. That's why this patient was in the ED, unable to afford her meds. Um, so insulin, it, it's not an easy answer, it's not an inexpensive answer, but it's a really good answer to um, the challenge of controlling uh, blood sugar. So in an ideal world, we would offer all our patients the Cadillac treatment of basal bolus insulin. That means four shots a day for people who are eating two, three meals a day. Um, as an easier regimen, an alternative might be to use the premixed insulin, like the um, Novolog Mix 7030 with breakfast and with dinner at night um, as an option. Uh, it's two shots a day uh, in a single injection uh, to simplify things. Sometimes our patients who have type 2 diabetes who are new to insulin are starting on just a bedtime shot to try to aim for a lower morning blood sugar, meaning they'll start off the day better and hopefully then continue their day better from there. But um, 
it's a real, it's a good way to go, but again, it's it's not easy. It's like adding another full time job. Um, monitoring again, our recommendations for elderly folks with diabetes are the same as for others to gathering information. We hope that information will be useful to them. What we don't want is somebody to bring in a three-month log of blood sugar numbers that nobody has reflected upon. We want people to be gathering that information and then either patting themselves on the back if it's just where they want it and no intervention is needed, or acting on those numbers. So um, if they're low, people know what to do. If blood sugars are high when they test, then I think people need to do a couple of things. They need to drink some water to try to prevent dehydration and try to flush that extra sugar out of their body. Go for a walk to chip away at that high blood sugar. And then thirdly, reflect on why it might have happened. Oh boy, I ate an extra donut this morning. Or I uh, didn't walk today because it was raining out. Or whatever may have, or maybe I'm coming down with something. Sometimes that's a cause of a high blood sugar. So thinking about those, those numbers. It's tricky business, it's a lot of numbers. Uh, it's a complicated disease. So trying to start off with some basic concepts and then move on from there. Um, so I still see a lot of patients who have been told to check their blood sugar every morning. And they do that faithfully. And then they get their, you know, their C123, 142, nothing much outside of that. And then their hemoglobin A1C is 9.7. And they're stuck. Well, they're never checking later in the day after they've eaten. So, so checking at different times of day is helpful to gather different kinds of information. Keeping a written record, I think, is helpful too, and with some comments. So, um, a big meal or smaller meal, exercise, give yourself a gold star, I think they're great. So um, keeping a record, but also um, thinking about each of I often liken the glucose monitoring to taking your temperature. Now, when's the last time any of us took our temperature? And if we had the flu last year or something, we don't do that regularly. But, but when we take our temperature, we either say, oh, I don't have a fever, I guess I have to go to work today, or if I'm 101, then you call in sick, you take some Tylenol, you can go back to bed, drink some fluids, check it again later. Um, so, so there are things that you do. But you don't beat yourself up if your temperature is 101. And I encourage people with diabetes not to get mad at themselves if they have a blood sugar of 240, but to say, hmm, this is information and I need to act on this. Um, I need to do something. Um, and then number five of the big five for treating diabetes is patient education. And this is an ongoing process uh, people who live with diabetes um, hopefully had some education at the time of diagnosis, but it's not a one shot and it's over with kind of thing. It should be, things change over time, people slip into bad habits. It's important that as nurses, at each encounter with a patient who has diabetes, we should be reviewing with them how they're managing their diabetes at home and ask people who've been living with it for a while, so what's hard for you about treating your diabetes? Oh, well, my glucose meter takes so much blood, it hurts my fingers. Well, you know what, there are newer meters now that need really tiny drops of blood. Or um, even letting people know about uh, newer opportunities, um, reviewing um, all parts of their treatment and trying to figure out if there are things that we might offer that could make their life a little bit easier, making sure they understand things. Um, so keep it short and simple for elderly people, keep it practical, uh, hands-on demonstrations, uh, and the ongoing follow-up. Important for people who have any chronic illness to be seen regularly by their primary care provider. The recommendation for diabetes, patients with diabetes, is at least every three months. Um, some people are followed by a PCP. Other people have a PCP and a diabetes specialist, um, and that's a kind of a personal preference. My opinion is that people who have type 1 diabetes really ought to have an endocrinologist on their team. Um, most PCPs do a really nice job with type 2 diabetes, but um, if it's not in good control, then perhaps an endocrinology consult is in order. And the follow-up should include thinking about the burden of caring for diabetes, looking for any complications, um, comorbidities that are also risk factors for cardiac disease. All of that is important. For our elderly people, there may be a number of things that make their treatment, uh, their self-management, a little bit more tricky. Uh, vision changes, which could be a result of aging or could be a result of diabetes, may affect their ability to manage their diabetes. Sense of smell and sense of taste may vary, so that may really affect their um, nutrition. Dexterity, being able to inject their insulin, check their blood sugar, those kinds of things. Um, we encourage people to exercise, but if because of neuropathy or 
arthritis or edema or whatever, they're limited in their ability to get around. Um, that's an important piece as well. Um, the emotional part of caring for diabetes is big. Elderly people often have many things going on in their life, and if they're living alone and that's a change for them, um, they may not have the support. They may be less inclined to cook a real dinner for themselves and might nibble on stuff that is inadequate or less nutritious. Um, financial limitations are huge for the elderly population. Um, dependence on others. Wanting, some people want a lot of help from others, some people don't. I saw a patient recently in the hospital with type 2 diabetes, but he was on steroids um, for a temporary period of time, and so he needed to take learn to take insulin. And I, I want to say he was 86 years old or so. His wife was a fair bit younger. And so it was my thought that maybe his wife could also practice the insulin injections, but no. This man was adamant that he alone be the one to take care of his diabetes. And he did a fabulous job. But I, I am not kidding when I tell you that it took him seven or eight tries to practice putting the needle on the pen, priming the pen, dialing up the dose, practice injections into a little cushion. Um, but he, he didn't want to stop. He was really clear that he wanted to be responsible for this himself and not have help. And he, he did it. He did just fine. And after he was discharged, he called me a few times as his prednisone was being tapered and his doses needed to be tapered. And he was just a superstar. And I was so impressed. I thought he did a, a really fine job. Another uh, patient I had seen, uh, and also 86, I believe, year old woman who had been treated with oral agents for her diabetes. And she needed to go on to insulin. She was in the hospital for a couple days. And she picked it up like that. She was just a whiz. And she called a day or so after she got home. And she said, I need to know what to do about my insulin tomorrow because I'm going bowling with the bowling team. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering if I should reduce my dose because I'll be getting more exercise. And I thought, wow. You know, some of these folks are sharp as tacks, and they really get it, and they want to do so well. So, uh, so I think that, that the independence of doing that is great, and they put a lot of our younger patients to shame for their ability to manage that. Um, said a whole lot about cognitive deficits. People who have diabetes have been shown to have a greater likelihood of dementia and depression, which are common elderly anyway, but there certainly is an association with diabetes. Um, and so those are huge factors in one's ability to, to care for themselves, both from the ability to remember what they're doing, to say, gee, did I already give my insulin today? And you know, having a system in place to make sure they don't give it a second time. Um, depression, kind of giving up on all this treatment is not uncommon. Um, so there are huge issues for elderly you know, in any case. But, but diabetes, caring for diabetes is a uh, pretty large burden of, uh, for anybody, but for the elderly in particular. So taking that into consideration is an important part of their care. And I don't have a whole lot of uh, easy answers to that, but it just is something that we all need to be cognizant of and uh, be reviewing with our patients when we're dealing with them. Among elderly adults, diabetes is the sixth leading cause of death, but this is always clearly underreported because people don't die of diabetes. They die of renal failure or gangrene or MI or a stroke or something that's related to their diabetes. But So just the fact that diabetes alone is, is that high on the uh, cause of death list, I think, remarkable. Um, most often it's cardiovascular disease. Um, but the rate of mortality is uh, estimated to be double among people who have diabetes. Um, older adults with diabetes have the highest rates for um, lower extremity amputations, MI, vision impairment, um, end-stage renal disease. And those um, who are over 75 have much higher rates, again, than those who are 65. Um, we see more, I mentioned this too, the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar non-ketotic syndrome, that uh, severe acute hyperglycemia state uh, is more likely to cause death. But as I said, over the last 20 years, there's been a decline. And I think it's an appreciation for what this is and the need for prompt uh, treatment and patient education for patients and families to know that if their mental status wanes a little bit, make sure they're drinking, make sure they're uh, taking their medication. Elderly people have twice as many emergency room visits for hypoglycemia compared to the younger population of people with diabetes. 
Um, as with all our patients who have diabetes, it's often not just the blood sugar, but it's also their blood pressure, their cholesterol, smoking perhaps. So, um, so we need to look at all of that, treating blood pressure aggressively, treating uh, hyperlipidemia aggressively, aspirin. The recommendation has been evolving over time, but for people who would benefit from primary or secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease with aspirin and have a reasonable risk for bleeding uh, problems, should be on a, a, um, an aspirin a day. Smoking avoidance. Um, some people, you've probably all seen this picture before. Um, for some people, it doesn't affect them, but for other people, it's a huge contributor. Uh, Early mortality. Um, so if diabetes is uh, uh, discovered after age 65, the life expectancy is estimated to be reduced by four years. Um, mortality is linked to glycemic control, um, as well as fluctuations in glucose over time. Um, so quantity of life is probably shortened a bit in most people by diabetes. Quality of life is certainly a factor. Um, so once there are a lot of complications, um, uh, making the treatment even more complex, um, we need to be cognizant of that burden. Um, just want to say a couple of words about patients with diabetes when they're hospitalized. Um, each year, about one out of every three elderly folks with diabetes ends up in the hospital. It, this may be their initial diagnosis, but often they're here for a complication of their diabetes or perhaps something that's unrelated. Um, but while they're here with us, it's an important time for us as nurses to assess their diabetes, self-management, um, offer them information, resources, follow-up education, uh, to hopefully take better care of it. Diabetes is very prevalent in nursing home populations, estimated to be 18% of nursing home residents. Um, and this is tricky as well uh, to manage all these individuals. I, my experience has been recently, though, that nursing homes are doing a, a nice job. A lot of them are doing basal bolus insulin treatment for their patients, their residents, and um, doing a nice job with it. But it is certainly a challenge in that population who may be less likely to advocate for themselves, less likely to recognize their hypoglycemia and so on. So it's certainly added challenges. Um, so to kind of summarize where we are, um, for older adults who have a reasonable life expectancy and have the wherewithal to learn how to manage their diabetes, we should be striving for <coughs> glycemic control as we would in younger um, adults. But for those who have um, multiple comorbidities um, and for whom this burden would be excessive, then we need to think about that, of relaxing the glycemic target for those folks. So with that, I'm going to stop. I have just a couple minutes for questions, but I'm happy to hear comments, questions, your experiences. Oh, please, have you heard of service dogs for hypoglycemia? I have. You know, I don't know an awful lot about it, but I have heard of people who um, have service dogs who are able to sense when they become hypoglycemic, which is really quite amazing. A lot of times family members notice it, but, it, but to train a dog to be able to notice that as well, it will then alert the individual who has unawareness of their hypoglycemia about that. The other thing, if you don't have a dog, is the new continuous glucose sensors that will alarm with a, a low blood sugar, um, which is great. Again, the individual needs to be able to react to that alarm. I've walked in with my patients here in the hospital whose alarm is beeping and they're not paying any attention to it. But for most people, that those have been constant. But the service dog, you know, that's a companion as well as a safety measure. So I sound great. And Yes, just this morning I was talking to a patient who is all um, in a uh, confused state because the changes in Medicare have affected the way he obtains his blood glucose testing supplies, and they're trying to get him to go to a different vendor and get a three-month supply shift, and it's all changed. And he was told he has to call Medicare and talk to somebody to figure out what. So he's all confused. And in the inpatient side, I don't often get that that whole feedback loop of like, so it's gonna actually snag Gail and Amanda because they do these prior authorizations and all that stuff from the clinic. But they, there are issues related to that. So Medicare is pretty fussy about what they'll pay for. They may or may not pay for insulin pens. 
And so for people, I didn't get into this too much, but for people taking insulin with dexterity or vision issues, the insulin pens are a godsend because they can feel and hear the clicks to count the dose um, rather than try to see to measure out the insulin. But yes, unfortunately, the number of patients. Was there another Another group ready to come in? Okay. I'll, I'll be outside if people have other questions that they'd like to ask. But thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.